0: Thank you, Mike and uh, Tim and Elise for using your gifts to edify us. How are you guys doing this morning? Good, good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians chapter six, starting in verse one. And what you're gonna see is last week, Paul talked about judging within the church on a lesson on church discipline on Mother's Day, which was excellent. And then today he's gonna continue this theme of judging, but the issue will not be uh, this case of sexual morality, but rather divisions within the church. So this sounds like a new start, but rather he is continuing on this theme of judging. So what he's going to say is that there are certain things that you should deal with in house. And there are certain things you should deal with, with those outside of God's house, outside of the people of God. So here's how, this is one way it works out in my family. One of the things you may not know is that when I sleep, I snore voraciously. Okay. Usually I don't, but sometimes I snore so hard that it wakes me up. You ever done that? I'm laying there and I just like that. I'm choking on air and I wake up and there is never a time that I hate myself more than when I snore myself awake, okay? My body should be working together with my body so we, me and my body, can get the adequate sleep that we need. Now, my wife, thankfully, is not a snorer like I, I am. Instead, she does something differently. She will, if she falls asleep on her back, she'll hold her breath and then blow it all out of her lips like this. Okay? Like this little water spout noise. So I'll just be sleeping and I hear, <gasps> it's like sleeping next to a dolphin. Okay? And so what happens is we sometimes wake each other up. We don't get other people involved. We don't sue one another. We don't take it before the court. We deal with it internally. Okay? Here's how it works. If I'm snoring, she takes her elbow and she nudges me awake. Never kindly, never, hey, I know you work so hard, and so you're probably so tired, and so you're sleeping. It's, you're snoring again, right? And as she's making her porpoise noises, what I do is I take my phone and I video it. (laughs) And then the next day, I'm like, look what you did. (laughs) Okay? So we deal with it internally. There are things you deal with in the home And there are things you deal with externally. And so what we'll see in this text is as Christians have disputes, what's going on in Corinth is also something that goes on today. We are to deal with it with the people of God. It's an in-house discussion. It's not something that we take out to others. There are times we do, but it depends on the case. So let me open us in a word of prayer and then we will get into the text. Father, we come before you because of the Son and by the Spirit, and we ask that you would uh, guide us, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. I pray that we would be a church that has minimal division and where we do, that we would deal with it like adults. We would deal with it like believers, where we would uh, be quick to overlook offenses. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name, amen. Well, with that in mind, let's jump in. Verse one, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Let's look at both parts of this. That first part of verse one, when one of you has a grievance against another another. Notice that word when. This is saying this is going to happen, okay? There is no such thing as living the Christian life and you being a sinner and you being around other sinners and there not being conflict. There is going to be, con- I don't care how godly you are. I don't care how much you pray. I don't care how many years you've been in church. There will be conflict. It's already happening at Corinth and it also happens today. Paul is not going to, he's not going to say there will never ever be conflict. That's unrealistic. Instead, he's saying when conflict arises, you have to deal with it like a Christian. You cannot avoid conflict. In fact, if you avoid all conflict, you're probably a coward. You're probably someone who doesn't stand for anything. You don't want to be a peacekeeper. You want to be a peacemaker. And so that means that there will be conflict. And so he's going to deal with what that looks like. There are going to be people here at the church, believe it or not, that you don't like, okay? There might be someone in leadership here you don't like. There might be someone in your community group you don't like. That's partially intentional, by the way. It causes you to grow in sanctification. There might be someone in your family you don't like. You might not really like your spouse and all of that is intentional by God because God's job is to sanctify you and he will use other people absolutely to do that, okay? He continues on with this sarcastic rhetorical question. Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The unrighteous there meaning lost people, people that don't know Jesus, and saints there meaning Christians, Remember, saints in the New Testament doesn't mean the kind of Roman Catholic canonized Saint Anthony or something like that. You and I are saints. And so he's saying, when you have a conflict, do you dare, instead of dealing with it with believers, do you dare go to those that are not Christians? Paul has two problems with dealing with internal dispute with those that are not Christians, okay? The first is that secular courts sometimes do not deliver justice. Believe it or not, secular courts often get things wrong. In the ancient world, the courts typically favored those who were wealthy and who were powerful. The idea being that a poor person has a lot to gain by suing a rich person, but a rich person doesn't have much to gain by suing a poor person, and that's injustice. Today, we do the opposite. Our courts favor those who are poor or seen as oppressed, both of which are evil and demonic. The Old Testament explicitly says that in court, you do not favor the rich person and you do not favor the poor person. True justice is treating people equally under law. That's true justice. You treat them the same, you don't exalt one or the other regardless of what happens in the past, regardless of what will happen in the future. So one, secular courts just get things wrong. Think about how many, things that are, uh, how many things are legal but still immoral. Adultery is legal but immoral. Pornography is legal but immoral. Abortion is legal but immoral. And so courts get things wrong. Within some courts, there's even logical contradictions. You know that to kill a pregnant woman is a double homicide, meaning they're saying there are two people. The baby's not a part of the mom's body. It's a second person. You get charged with murder twice, but then abortion's legal. Is it a second person or not? So even within courts, there's all this corruption. That's one problem that Paul has, but that's not his biggest problem. His biggest problem is to take an issue among believers and take that issue to people who have an entirely different worldview is crazy to the Apostle Paul. Okay? Why would you go before someone who doesn't believe in the resurrection, doesn't believe Jesus is God, doesn't believe in the Bible, doesn't hold anything that you hold and say, please speak into the biggest issues going on in my life. For Paul, that is insane. This is a difficult place to walk. I've got a buddy who is a uh, Christian attorney, which is an oxymoron. And uh, it's a joke. uh, we 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 have good attorneys here. He is a godly guy and he's an excellent attorney. He's both, he lives over near Flower Mound and he has to walk this line. So when he is dealing with a client, he will have to say, as your attorney, I think you should try to sue for more money. As a Christian though, I don't think you should do that. Because he's trying to give good legal representation and also give spiritual guidance. Or he'll be dealing with someone that's a Christian going through a divorce and he'll say, as your attorney, I think you need to take this guy for all he's worth. As a Christian, though, you don't need to go for soul custody. You need to let these kids see their dad. That's important for their development. And he has to walk this difficult line of both secular and biblical wisdom, okay? Verses two through three. So now the text is going to start to get a little bit weird. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Maybe you didn't know that. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? how much more than matters pertaining to this life? What does that mean? He's saying, okay, don't sue each other, deal with things within the church. Oh, by the way, we're gonna judge everybody and we're gonna judge angels. What is happening, okay? How do we figure out what on earth that means? Well, here's what you don't do. You don't Google it, okay? If you Google what it means that we're gonna judge angels, you're gonna get some real weird stuff. You're gonna get weird blogs, you're gonna get some guy that has a YouTube ministry but not a real ministry. Stay away from all that. Don't Google major theological issues and don't Google anything related to medicine, okay? Just throwing that out there. Every time I Google that, I'll have a blister on my foot and I put it in and guess what it is? Brain cancer, every time. (laughs) Rash on my arm, symptoms, brain cancer. I will even be trying to avoid it. What are some healthy foods I can eat? It will take me to WebMD and tell me I have brain cancer. That's how it works. So don't Google medical stuff, you're not a doctor. Don't Google major theological questions as if the internet should decide the things of God, okay? Rather, we're gonna figure out what this looks looks like by looking at things in the Bible. Before we explain what that means to judge the world and judge angels, I want you to see a few things about the structure and such of verses two through three. First of all, I want you to see the ABAB structure. What he's saying is this, if you're gonna judge the world, then surely you can judge trivial cases. And if you're gonna judge angels, then surely you can judge earthly matters. He's using something we've seen a lot because it occurs a lot in the New Testament, what is called an a fortiori argument. That is a fancy Latin phrase that means to the stronger, a fortiori. Here's simply the idea. If you can do the more difficult thing, then surely you can do the easier thing. A few examples we've given in the past. If you can lift 200 pounds, can you lift 100? Yes, this is a trick question, yes or no? Yes, if you can run two miles, can you run one mile? Yes, in fact, you can't get to two miles without also first going through one. It's just the way numbers work, okay? If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball, and as we've said, if you can beat up Mike Tyson, then you can beat up, as he would say, his thifter. okay? So, if you can do, if you can do the harder thing, you can do the easier thing. So, here's what Paul is saying. If you're gonna do judging the world and judging angels, whatever that means, are you not competent to deal with an issue when somebody's fence blows down of figuring out who needs to pay for it? Are you not competent enough when there's a fender bender in the parking lot of your church to deal with that issue if you're going to judge angels? You see Paul's sarcasm, but in a righteous way to, to bring about a rebuke. He's using this a fortiori style argument. Paul, before he even explained what this means, he is saying that an eternal perspective changes Everything. An eternal perspective changes everything. If you believe that there's an afterlife, if you believe that you're gonna be resurrected, you're free to overlook an offense. Do you know why? Because God will deal with it later. If you believe in a resurrection and you believe in an afterlife, if somebody owes you money, you're free just to forgive that debt. Do you know why? Because one day you're gonna inherit the world. If you're in a difficult marriage, you're free to stay in that difficult marriage. Do you know why? Because one day you'll have eternal bliss. You see, if you're not a Christian, you don't think this way, you have to sue everybody. You have to get your money. This is the only life you get. You need your money now. You need your happiness now. If your spouse isn't making you happy, leave them, find a different spouse. You see, what Paul is dealing with is a bigger issue than just conflict in the church. He's dealing with a worldview. He's dealing with a philosophy. He's dealing with a theology that says, do you see the present age in light of eternity or not? Okay? Okay. Now he says this, we'll look at the first part of verse two. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Did you know that the Bible teaches this at several places? Let me show you a few. Old Testament and new. Daniel 7.22, until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the most high. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. That's Jesus saying, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Revelation 24, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. That's not the vaccine, by the way. Stop being those weird people, okay? <laughs> they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Matthew 19:28 through 30, okay? This is specifically talking about the apostles, but notice that the apostles are more people than just Jesus. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first, okay? So the Bible says we're gonna judge the world. What on earth does that mean? Let me give you some things it doesn't, I'll give you, let me give you something it doesn't mean, something it might mean, and something it probably means. Here's what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that we as individuals will judge people, okay, it's not as though I'm sitting on a throne and like Jeff stands before me and I'm like, Jeff, you're a good friend, you get to go to heaven. And then Jared stands before my throne and I'm like, Jared, remember that time you made fun of me in your sermon? To hell with you, right, that's that's (laughs) not how it works. Okay. Nobody holds that. That's orthodox. Nobody holds that. That's not the idea. Okay. That's what, that's what it doesn't mean. What it might mean is, and some commentators have pointed this out, and I think it's a smart interpretation is the way that we judge the world is because our, our holy actions contrast with their wicked actions. This is the way that Jesus uses the term. Remember when he says that the queen of the South, the queen of Sheba, the one that went to see Solomon will rise up and judge this generation because she realized that Solomon was great, but you guys don't realize that someone greater than Solomon is here. Notice that she's not judging it in the sense of like end times, eschatological, sitting on a throne judgment. They're being judged because their unrighteous actions are being shown to be unrighteous in light of holy actions. So there's a sense in which every time we walk in righteousness, we're judging the world because our light is contrasting with their darkness. I think that's smart. I think that's true theologically. I don't think that's the main point of the text. I think the main point of the text is this, that we will judge in the sense that we are in Christ and he judges on our behalf, okay? Remember that when you become a Christian, you die. You don't exist anymore. You are now in Christ. What is true of Christ is true of you. That doesn't mean you become Jesus, you don't become God, anything like that. What it means is his status belongs to you. He's perfect, you're seen as perfect. He's loved, you're loved. He's righteous, you're seen as righteous. He is spotless, you're seen as spotless because you are in Christ, I can't fly, but if I'm in an airplane, I can because the plane can I can't be righteous, but because I'm in Christ, I am righteous. So the idea is as he judges, there's a sense in which we are in him, although it is he that is doing the judging. Anthony Thistleton, who's a New Testament scholar who does have the best 1 Corinthians commentary, although it's very technical, says this. Listen to this quote. No Christian will judge the world as an independent individual but as one of the corporeity who bears Christ's image and shares Christ's destiny and likeness as raised with him. All judgment would in this sense remain Christ since those in Christ would reflect only the character of Christ. Another conflict my wife and I have, by the way, we're doing great. I just have a bunch of marriage examples today, okay? We just moved, you know, and so maybe that's, so one of the things that will happen is if I get a burger and some fries, I will ask my wife, honey, would you like some fries? And she will say, no. No and then she will try to eat some of my fries, okay? That ever happened to anybody? I have the th- now, the problem is not that I don't want to give her fries. I will buy her a McDonald's. I will give her infinite fries. I will just shower her in fries, okay? The problem is not that I don't want to spend money or that I want her to be hungry. It's this. I'm, a, I'm 100% hungry, and so I get the food that I will need to fill me up 100%. And when she eats some of my fries, I'm only 95% full, Okay? <laughs> or the same thing with a drink. Are you thirsty? No. Hey, can I have a sip of your drink? I'm like, okay. I'm 100% thirsty, and you drink 25% of my water bottle. You know, do the math, carry the one. I'm 75% thirsty, you know, uh, quenched. It's still 25% thirsty. Now, who's wrong on this debate? It's me, okay? She's not the one with the problem to want some fries. They're her fries, and here's why because there is no more me. I don't own anything that's just mine because we're one flesh. There is mo- no more Zach and Katie. There's just like Keck or Zadie or something. There's just, there's just one. So my fries are her fries, okay? Believe it or not, my wife lives in my house. Do you know why? Because it's also her house. Everything that belongs to me belongs to her. There's a sense because we are Christ's bride that we are in him. That's why we get to inherit the world. He is the true inheritor of the world, but we belong to him, we're his bride. He judges, and so there's a sense in which we're there, though he is really the one doing the judgment. Paul continues, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? You see his argument here. If you're gonna judge the world, can you not deal with these small things? Now, what is a trivial case, okay? A trivial case is not a case related to criminality. If you kill a guy and bury him in your backyard and I find out about that, I'm not just taking that to the elders, okay? I'm taking that to other, uh, criminal cases between you and the state, okay? This is also not talking about a major case where somebody is like trying to take your house and your kids won't have anywhere to live or something like this. Trivial cases most likely pertain to issues of property or money that the person could overlook and just doesn't wanna do so because they're selfish. You see, to the Apostle Paul, the things of this life are all trivial. What matters for Paul are things that are eternal, not things that are temporal, meaning temporary. For Paul, things that matters are things like resurrection, justification, the gospel, holiness, evangelism. Those are the kind of things that matter to him. Whether or not somebody fully paid their bill to you who's a Christian is of way less importance to the Apostle Paul. And he probably gets this idea of trivial versus major cases from the Old Testament, okay? So if you think back to Exodus 18, Moses is judging all the people, okay? He's just one guy though, there's a bunch of people in Israel and he's getting exhausted. So what they decide is that he will judge the big cases and he'll appoint other judges to try trivial cla- cases. He'll appoint kind of these small claims courts to try those things. That's probably what Paul means by a trivial case. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says this, if it is of concern for the one who defrauded and for all others who might be so taken in, then one might seem fully justified to go to court. But if it is for the sake of one's own possessions alone, then one surely needs to ask about proper motives and priorities, okay? Verse three, it gets weird again. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Now look at that first part there. He says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? And I'm thinking, actually, no, right? He's meaning that whatever whatever the Corinthians know, they know more about angels than I do. He's like, you know how you guys are gonna judge angels? They're like, "Uh, you're you're totally right, Paul. And I'm like, what is happening? Don't you know we're gonna judge angels? No, actually, until you said this, I didn't really know that, okay? The Bible sometimes has these weird throwaway phrases with angels. I'll give you one of my favorite ones. Revelation 21, 17 says this, as an angel is measuring the new Jerusalem. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement. Look at the next phrase, which is also an angel's measurement. (laughs) How helpful is that? So like when an angel goes to Angel Home Depot and you you go to human Home Depot and you both buy measuring tapes, they match, okay? I can't even get America to use the metric system, which makes more sense, but the angels are killing it, okay? So it just gives this throwaway phrase, don't you know that we're gonna judge angels? Now, what on earth does this mean? Let me try to explain it, because this is a concept that, that you have to know a bunch about, what the Bible teaches about humans and angels for this to make sense. There is a sense in which angels are better than us. They're smarter than us, they're stronger than us, they've been around longer than we have. They're terrifying. When they show up in the Bible, people shake and fall down and try to worship them. Don't give me this precious moments, naked baby angel, girl angel on your Christmas tree. In the Bible, they're terrifying and they have weapons and sometimes they even kill people, okay? So there's a sense in which we think, wait a second, angels in one sense are way better than we are. We're fallible humans, I have to sleep. I have to use the restroom. I cut my finger the other day, I kid you not, on a cookie. (laughs) I cut my finger. Here's how it happened. I was in Jared Lawson's car and I stuck my hand down on the side of the seat and cut my finger. So I pull up my bloody finger and I look down in the seat to see what I cut it on. And it had been a cookie, a chocolate cookie that had melted and hardened into a point. (laughs) Jared's son, if you've ever seen him, is enormous, okay? He has no ankles. His legs look like elephant legs. They're just trunks. And so what I imagine is he's just probably eating cookies all day. And because of his little butter fingers, he drops one down into the the seat and it cuts me, to which Jeff aptly replied, that is one sharp cookie. Now, that's, I'm a human. That's not that great. Okay. Angels not getting cut on cookies. They're tough. Then why on earth does the Bible say that we will judge angels? Follow me closely here. Okay because we have something that angels don't. Do you know what it is? It's that we alone bear the image of God, okay? God has created two rational beings, angels and humans. Humans alone though are said to bear the image of God. What does that mean and what does it not mean? First of all, it does not mean that God looks like us. That would be making God in your image. God does not have a body, God is spirit, he is infinite. God is not, not an old man on the clouds. When you're thinking of that, you're thinking of Zeus, you're not thinking of the God of the Bible. Okay? God does not look like us. In fact, the Bible actually says that men and women are made in the image of God. Do you think God also looks like a woman? Does he look androgynous? Does he look like Michael Jackson? Or Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner, depending on what your political party? Is that how God looks? Okay. No, that's not what it means that we bear the image of God. Additionally, there, there's all kinds of answers people give. A lot of people in the early church said that it, what it means to bear the image of God is that we walk upright. You see, the animals, they're looking down on the earth. They're on all fours. They're not great. But we as humans, we look up to the heavens and that's what it means to bear the image of God. Well, the problem with that, you know, is like ostriches and stuff that also walk upright, okay? Some have said what it means to bear the image of God is that we're rational, that we're smart, but aren't aren't angels smart? Aren't they rational? Some have said that what it means to bear the image of God is that we worship God, right? We have this spiritual relationship with God, but don't angels also worship God and have a spiritual relationship with God? Some have said that what it means is that we have community. We gather together and we have homes and families. Don't angels have community as they worship together in heaven? So what then does it mean to bear the image of God? I think it means a bunch of things, but let me give you what I think the primary thing is. The primary thing that it means to bear the image of God is that we have been commanded to rule, to judge. That's why God gives us the earth and tells us to subdue the earth, right? That's why we name the animals and they don't name us part of what it means to bear the image of God is that you get to rule, okay? Not like God. You're not a God. You're you're just a human made out of the dirt. That's all you'll ever be. But God has given you this special role of ruling. And so I think that that's kind of the idea that's going on. Though angels are smarter than us and more powerful than us, we have something. God loves humans with a special love. When angels sin, that's it. They only get one shot and then they're condemned. Jesus was not incarnated as an angel. He was incarnated as a human to save humans. God has a special love for humanity. In fact, the Bible actually describes angels in a sense look down on humanity with almost a holy jealousy because God cares for us and loves us so much. But again, this doesn't mean that I individually or you individually are judging angels. It's not like Gabriel stands before me and I'm like, Gabriel, where were you in 2020? What were you doing, right? That's not what's happening. And again, it is that Jesus is judging, And because we are in Christ, we are there, but he is the one doing the judging. Think back to like a medieval king and queen. You have a king sitting on his throne and he's judging, but who is seated at his side? It's his queen, his bride. She's not actually doing the judging. He's doing the judging, but she is there because she is linked to the king. When he speaks, she speaks. His declaration is also her declaration. That's how the Bible sees the church. Jesus is ultimately the one judging, judging humans and angels, okay? Whether they have uh, known Christ or not, whether for angels they've been obedient or disobedient, but it is Christ is the one who is doing that, okay? Verses four through six. So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame, Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? Now listen to me. There's two rebukes that Paul is gonna give here and you need to hear both of them. Okay, It's two rebukes. The first is that by going to lost people, the church is airing its dirty laundry to non-believers. When you go and you look weird, you look strange, you look divisive, you look mean, and you're taking another Christian to court before someone who's not a Christian, they're gonna think, why would I be a Christian? You guys are not any different than the rest of the world. The other thing Paul is rebuking them for is, is going before people who don't have a Christian worldview to speak into the most important issues in your life. Let me address both of these, okay? I, I need to give a small rebuke, if I may, okay? I don't wanna make you mad, but what are you gonna do? Sue me? <laughs> you can't, right? So I need to offer a small rebuke, okay? The Bible cares how lost people see us, okay? Some of you care too much what people think. You have a fear of man. But some of you don't care enough what people think. You are to care to some extent what people think about you because you represent Christ. So let me say the thing that's now more offensive. Over the last two years, we at Parkway have had to push against the political left often okay? The reason we've had to do that is not because we're some weird right-wing whatever, it's just because we're trying to be biblical. The left is the greater threat to the Christian church. If you don't see that, you are tremendously ignorant. It is not the right who's trying to arrest pastors for saying homosexuality and and transgenderism are sin. It's not the right who's trying to, uh, who arrested, you know, people for trying to go to church last year, even following CDC guidelines. It's not the right who's trying to make spanking your kids illegal, which the Bible commands. It's not the right who's firing people and canceling people because they don't give in to the beliefs of the masses. It is the left that is the far greater danger to the Christian church. You might not believe me, but that's okay. We can talk about it when we're in prison for who you voted for and put in office, okay? Now, having said that, okay? Now listen to this other side. This is the offensive side. Having said that, some of you are so far right wing that you have gone far beyond the Bible, okay? You've gone weird conspiracy theory. You've gone where you think all vaccines are bad and are gonna just murder everybody. Even when it was a mandate for the governing authorities to wear a mask, some of you didn't do that and you were breaking the law and sinning. But Zach, it was against my conscience. Where in the Bible does it say thou shalt not wear a mask? You don't get to use your conscience as a way to break the law, okay? That's not how we do theology. That's not how we do Bible, So the reason I say that is because some of you will never be able to evangelize lost people because before you can get to Jesus, you've already turned them off with your weird politics. Paul cares what lost people think about Jesus, and some of you make him look beautiful, some of you make him look really weird. So keep that in mind, okay, keep that in mind. We have to rebuke the left, there are times though we have to also rebuke on the right. Our job, we're not a political entity, our job is just to be Bible. Our job is just to give you Bible. You don't get to go further than the Bible, either direction, okay? Either direction. The other thing that Paul critiques them for, in addition to making the church look bad before lost people because they're bringing their divisive cases to these secular courts, he also rebukes them for going before people who are not going to be able to judge your case because they're not Christians. They, they have a warped mind. You understand lost people belong to the devil. I'm not saying they all have a demon or anything like that. They're under the realm of the evil one. They have an unregenerate mind and they do not see the world correctly. They do not think about marriage the way the Bible says. They do not think about kids the way the Bible says. They do not think about any justice the way the Bible says, any of that. And Paul is saying, why on earth would you go before them for cases that are spiritual? It makes no sense. If my wife and I get into a fight, again, we're doing great, okay? Keep using this, you're be like, Zach and Ken. no, we're doing great. This is just, these are all the analogies in my mind. If Katie and I get into a fight, do we go before our kids to settle the dispute? They're three and five, by the way. No, because my daughter who's three will just say my my wife is right because my daughter likes her mommy more than she likes me. And my son will be like, I'm a dinosaur and that'll be the end of it, okay? (laughs) That's it. Paul is saying, why would you do that? Why would you take these important matters and bring them before lost people? They're not gonna be able to deal with that. So I would encourage you that if you have conflict, stop trying to deal with it by yourself and bring it to other Christians. It doesn't even have to be like leadership at the church, just other godly people. If you have conflict with someone in your family, get other Christians involved. You have conflict with someone of your friends, get other Christians involved. You have conflict with someone in your community group, meet with your group leader. You have conflict, don't try to deal with these issues on your own. Use the church. God wants to do that. He doesn't want you dealing with these issues on your own. If you're going to move, talk to other Christians first. If you're going to get a new job, talk to other Christians first. Make all big decisions in community. Did you know at Parkway, if you're a member, you're not allowed to file for divorce against your spouse until you come and talk to us? You sign that in your membership covenant. You know why? Because divorce is a secular court suit. And we say, no, before you're able to do that, the Bible is very clear. You come to the church to try to deal with this dispute so that it doesn't end in divorce, much less having to go before the secular authorities. Deal with the little things, the little divisions, before they become big divisions. Verses seven through eight. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now, there's a lot of people that misunderstand verses 7 and 8. They think that Paul is saying you can never go to court, okay? So let's talk about what the text doesn't mean, and then we'll talk about what it does mean, okay? First of all, it's not saying—so some people think this passage is saying you can't ever go to court or that you can never fight for justice. That's not what the text is saying, okay? Okay? few things. First of all, Paul appeals to pagan Roman courts several times. Read Acts 16 and Acts 25. Additionally, notice the language here that's Christians within the same church. They're both Christians, and it is a, quote, trivial case. It's not this major thing. It's this minor thing. It's this smaller thing. New Testament scholar Frank Thielman says this. It's a long quote, but read it because it's very important. I think it's an excellent interpretation. Although some have argued that Paul is prohibiting Christians from ever going to court against another Christian, Paul seems in these verses only to be addressing disputes related to property or money, that's why he uses why not rather be defrauded, rather than criminal cases which fall under the jurisdiction of the state. See Romans 13, through 5 where Paul shows that God has established the civil government for the protection and good of all people. It is doubtful, therefore, that Paul's intention uh, uh, is that this specific example should be applied in every situation, since not every situation today matches the circumstances of this specific case in Corinth, where the two parties are in the same local church, that's why he says among you, and where the dispute is specifically related to property or money, which is why he uses the phrase to be defrauded. Or to give you one more quote, we have a whole blog on this called Can Christians Sue Other Christians. Let me give you a quote from that blog. If a pastor has sexually assaulted a child, you should take legal action. If a church is hurting people and they need to be warned against evil leaders, you may have to take legal action. If the church is disobedient and refuses to arbitrate, people won't actually meet with you to help you, you may have to take legal action against that Christian. If the church is covering up sin and hiding behind false teaching, legal action may be the only way to expose their corruption. If the church is committing criminal action, you may have to take legal action. If the issue is not a quote trivial case but could cause serious long-term injury, you may have to take legal action. If the issue is with someone who is a non-believer, you may have to take legal action, okay? Paul is saying that on most cases, when it's Christian and Christian and it is a trivial case, you let it go or you let the church be the arbitrator of that dispute. But he's not saying there are never times to get the law involved. We'll see a few of these in just a second. But here's the main thing. So I hear that, I hear verses seven through eight and I hear there are times you go to court and I think, yes, I'm gonna get you, okay? But I don't want you to miss the heart of really what Paul is saying here, which is rebuking us for our desire for vengeance, rebuking us for always wanting everything to be pharisees when sometimes we just need to turn the other cheek and be wronged. On trivial matters regarding one's own possessions, our default should be to forgive and not to seek justice. Let me give you some passages. Matthew 5, 38 through 41, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that's justice. That's making everything fair this side of eternity. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Verse 40, look at this. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. If somebody's defrauded you, give them more money. Be like the priest from Les Mis, who gives away the extra candlesticks when the guy tries to steal his silverware. Luke 6, 28, bless those who curse you. Matthew five forty three through 44, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke 12, 57 through 59, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? This fits along with what Paul is saying. As, uh, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. And then Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. If there's one verse our culture needs to hear, it's that. Wokeness says do not overlook offenses, seek back the power. The Bible says, overlook offenses. When you're slighted, turn the other cheek. Bless them, pray for them. Justice is coming, but not now. It's coming at the end. It's coming in the eschaton. It's coming in the last days. That's when it's coming. That it's a man's glory to overlook an offense. Now, these passages are difficult for me, okay? I'm from Texas. If you drive by and you flip me off, my first inclination is not to say, I'm gonna pray for you. It's to remind you of my Second Amendment rights, right? (laughs) That's why this text is hard for us. We want to explain it away and just say, okay, there are times to go to court, so let's just go there quickly. No, no, no. The default should usually be to say, can I overlook this? Or is this something that can be dealt with in the church? So let me give you some examples. And we're gonna, we're gonna take a little test. We're gonna have a little pop quiz, okay? The, you, you can choose between one of three answers. A, turn the other cheek and let it go. B, deal with it with people in the church, meaning other people to arbitrate that issue. Or C, get the law involved. Those are your options. Everybody know your options? A, let it go. B, deal with it in the church, or C, get the law involved. Let me give you a few examples. A Christian doesn't pay you for a service you rendered, and the amount is not exorbitant. What should you do? A or B, okay? A or B. You can let it go, or if it's still eating at you, meet with someone at the church, and they can talk about who owes who, whom what. A non-Christian doesn't pay you for a service you rendered, and the amount is so much that you will have to lay off employees, Maybe see, you might have to get the law involved, okay? Because that's affecting not just you, that's hurting other people. And we as Christians are to care for other people. Someone flips you off in traffic and curses you out. (laughs) Excellent, right? We wanna say, see. We let it go, right? We pray for them, we bless those who curse us. We turn the other cheek. You see why Christianity is hard. The the gospel is counterintuitive to our sinful natures. Number four. A Christian has committed a crime such as the sexual assault of a minor. C. In that case, you have to get the the authorities involved. Number five, you and another Christian disagree with a business deal between the two of you and one of you feels cheated. B. Take it to the church. We have people at this church that are excellent businessmen and they understand the ins and outs of whatever you're going through. Let them speak into your life. Let them give you some Jesus as they're also giving you financial advice. Number six, a church is doing shady, illegal things or harming people, and though you've asked them to repent and walk in the light, they refuse. There are times it has to be C. You try to do A and B first, but there are times it has to be C. Please don't sue us. We're just a little church trying to tell people about Jesus. If you have a problem, just come talk to us instead. And then number seven, a man is physically abusing his wife. C. Okay? If a woman calls me and says my husband is beating me, I say, you call the cops and you have him arrested. Until he can learn to not be a coward, you get men who are stronger than him to pull him away. And what you do is you can be physically separate from that person while we work on your marriage. The Bible does not allow abuse as a grounds for divorce, by the way. Okay? But what it does allow is for you to not be being abused. It does allow you that space to even get the law involved so that you're physically protected. And then we can deal with it in the church as we try to minister to the woman and also minister to the man, okay? And then number eight, verse eight rather. Sorry, I'm done with those examples. Verse eight is obvious. He's just saying that instead of being defrauded, you defraud people. And he says, even your own brothers, because he's highlighting the fact that they're family. Count how many times in this passage he uses the term brothers. It's a bunch because he's trying to say, do you see how ridiculous you're being? You guys are a family. So here's how I wanna end this sermon, giving us a chance to repent. Here's the question I wanna ask you. Where do you just need to be wronged? Where do you just need to be wronged? I want you to take a second. I want you to think through somebody that has offended you, somebody that maybe still owes you money, another Christian who's slighted you or who's made you mad. Maybe it's me in this sermon right now. Maybe you need to forgive me. Maybe, maybe there's some frustration you have with a family member, your spouse. Whatever it might be, who do you need to forgive? And if you say, but Zach, I can't let this go. I can't forgive. I have been wronged to a serious degree. Well, let me give you the words about someone else who was wronged to a serious degree, though he didn't do anything wrong. 1 Peter 2, 20 through 25. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Would you take a minute before I pray to forgive those that you need to forgive, to turn the other cheek, to bless those who curse you? Who is somebody that when you see their name on the caller ID, you start to get frustrated? When you think of that person, you get frustrated. Would you take a second and then I'll pray and then we'll enter into a time of communion? Dear God, we confess that we often don't do what you do. You are gracious and you cause your sun to shine and your rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous just because you're kind, even to your enemies. I pray that you would uh, forgive us for we have failed at this many, many times. I pray that Parkway would be a church where we don't have much division. I confess that it's a church where at least right now we don't, which is a huge blessing. Most of our people love each other. I pray that it would always be that way and as conflict comes up, we would deal with it lovingly. We'd ask questions instead of giving accusations. We'd be kind to one another. We'd ask other people in Christian community to arbitrate the issue for us. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.